Good evening. We look at the um, developments around the um, near disaster and the death of one, the hostage taker to Texas synagogue over the weekend and what new information has been discovered. And we talk about the uh, spread of anti-Semitic violence across America. And uh, today is the uh, the birthday or was this weekend the actual birthday of uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. He would have been 93 we go to Washington, hear from his son, granddaughter, and many other people. The big issue, voting rights. Not much of a change since all those years ago. That's all part of the news for Monday, January 17th, 2021. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The rabbi of a Texas synagogue where a gunman took hostages during live stream services credited past security training for getting himself and his congregants out safely. Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker told CBS Mornings he let the gunman inside the suburban Fort Worth synagogue Saturday because he appeared to need shelter. Later, he heard a gun click as he was praying. When your life is threatened, you need to do whatever you can to get to safety, you need to do whatever you can to get out. The last hour or so of the standoff, he wasn't getting what he wanted. It didn't look good, it didn't sound good. We were terrified. And when I saw an opportunity where he wasn't in a good position, I asked, made sure that the two gentlemen who were still with me, that they were ready to go uh, the exit wasn't too far away. I told them to go. I threw a chair at the gunman, and I headed for the door. And all three of us were able to get out without even a shot being fired. And as Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, another man held hostage, Jeffrey R. Cohen, described the ordeal on Facebook. He wrote, first of all, we escaped. We weren't released or freed. At one point, as the situation devolved, Cohen said the gunman told them to get on their knees. Cohen recalled rearing up in his chair and slowly moving his head and mouthing no. As the gunman moved to sit back down, Cohen says Citron Walker yelled to run. Authorities identified the hostage taker as 44-year-old British national Malik Faisal Akram, who was killed Saturday night after the last three hostages ran out of the synagogue in Coleyville, Texas, around 9 p.m. The FBI on Sunday issued on Sunday night issued a statement calling the ordeal a terrorism-related matter in which the Jewish community was targeted and said the Joint Terrorism Task Force is investigating. The family of Afia Siddiqui, a Pakistani neuroscientist being held in a Texas federal prison on an 86-year sentence for allegedly firing a gun at U.S. soldiers at an intelligence agency during an, uh, an interrogation, uh, have denounced the hostage-taking. Council on American-Islamic Relations National Deputy Director Edward Odd Mitchell said, We strongly condemn the hostage-taking at Congregation Beth Israel in Coleville, Texas. The latest anti-Semitic attack at a house of worship is an unacceptable act of evil. American Jewish Committee New York Regional Director Josh Kramer says the reasons behind the attack are irrelevant because of the history of deadly anti-Semitic attacks in the United States, especially in recent years. Whatever this perpetrator's uh, you know, intentions were, we, we do know that this perpetrator, uh, by their own words, targeted Jews and a synagogue with their actions. And so it is part of the broader trend uh, in, in anti-Semitic attacks on Jewish spaces. So it's, it's, uh, it's highly concerning. Uh, just two weeks into the new year, 
uh, we are once again under attack. Uh, and many uh, are increasingly concerned about anti-Semitism. You hear these kind of things happening, but it, it does seem like there is an increase. Is that what you're seeing? I couldn't agree more. It seems like there is a stark increase in the last few years. It seems as though the low point in anti-Semitic attacks in America was in the second half of the 20th century. And now we are seeing a resurgence in these hate-based crimes, such as in Pittsburgh, Poway, more recently in New Jersey and Muncie. We are showing in the AJC's 2021 State of Antisemitism in America report, one in four American Jews say their institutions have been attacked, threatened, or defaced in the last five years. So this is definitely a huge resurgence in anti-Semitic hate. Is this because of, strangely, the former president of the United States seems to have stirred up this kind of thing. Do you think that's part of it, or is that is it a bit deeper than that even? Jew hatred comes from a variety of sources. It comes from the far left. It comes from the far right. It comes from religious extremists. Um, it's it's hard to characterize it in, in, in this way. I mean, we, we see anti-Semitism coming from many different directions. What's going on? Why the focus on Jewish people as the other, in particularly in Western cultures, but we see it widely happening? If I could answer that question simply, I would win the Nobel Prize, perhaps. But it's a complicated origin story of, of where anti-Semitism comes from, why it's resurging right now. I mean, it speaks to all sorts of insecurities in various communities across the country. We need to do a better job of educating ourselves, educating one another on this historic hatred. We just basically need to speak out. Jews need to take action. We're currently petitioning the White House to convene a task force that will develop a national action plan to fight anti-Jewish hate here domestically, rather than the efforts that the U.S. already has in place to fight anti-Semitism on the world stage. Jews should not be afraid. We need to be able to uh, live openly as Jews. It's something that's very, very important in the fight against anti-Semitism. What is the next step? We are pushing the U.S. government to come together, convening allies. American Jewish Committee strives to form strong ties to different groups. One of our most important programs, the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, came together and, and put out a strong statement on yesterday's events. There's just a renewed need for education on this subject. To learn about anti-Semitism, AJC puts out many resources on our website. I encourage everyone to seek those out and educate themselves. Has there been... Um a more a gathering, a sort of ecumenical gathering of different religions to try and to denounce this kind of thing? We are always pleased when our allies speak out. We are always proud uh, to, that our alliances with various ecumenical groups are born out to be strong. We love to see statements of support, and that's helpful in the fight against anti-Semitism. We've seen an outpouring of support in the last 48 hours. We've also seen some statements that are uh, more nuanced. There's been a hesitancy to call this hostage situation, an anti-Semitic attack on a synagogue, and we are baffled by, frankly. Josh Kramer is Regional Director of American Jewish Committee, New York City. And Akram's family in England said he'd been suffering from mental health issues. His brother, Gulbar Akram, wrote, We would also like to add that any attack on any human being, be it Jew, Christian, or Muslim, etc., is wrong and should always be condemned. 
Meanwhile, the investigation into the hostage taking stretched to England, where late Sunday police in Manchester announced two teenagers were in custody. Greater Manchester police tweeted that counterterrorism officers had made the arrest, but didn't say if the pair face any charges. Federal investigators believe Akram purchased the handgun used in the hostage taking in a private sale. Akram arrived in the United States at John F. Kennedy International Airport about two weeks ago. And a recently publicized book says there may be new answers in the death of a young Jewish girl in Germany during World War II. A cold case team that combed through evidence for five years in a bid to unravel one of World War II's enduring mysteries has reached what it calls the most likely scenario of who betrayed Jewish teenage diarist Anne Frank and her family. Their answer outlined in a new book called The Betrayal of Anne Frank, a cold case investigation by Canadian academic and author Rosemary Sullivan, is that it could have been a prominent Jewish notary called Arnold Van Den Berg, who disclosed the secret annex hiding place of the Frank family to German occupiers to save his own family from deportation and murder in Nazi concentration camps. The Franks and four other Jews hid in the annex, reached by a secret staircase hidden behind a bookcase from July 1942 until they were discovered in August 1944 and deported to concentration camps. Only Anne's father, Otto Frank, survived the war. Anne and her sister died in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and was 15. And funeral services were held Monday for nine children and three adults who died in a Philadelphia fire five days into the new year, the deadliest blaze in the city in more than a century. The victims of the January 5th fire were all on the third floor of a duplex north of the city center near the Philadelphia Museum of Art. The three-story brick duplex is owned by the Philadelphia Housing Authority, which is the city's public housing agency and the state's biggest landlord. Three sisters, Rosalie McDonald, Virginia Thomas, and Kenesha White, and nine other children died in the blaze. The blaze had been the deadliest fire in years at a U.S. residential building, but was surpassed days later by a fire in a high-rise in New York City's Bronx Borough. That killed 17 people, including nine children. And a day before the United States Senate was expected to take up significant legislation on voting rights that is looking likely to fail, Martin Luther King Jr.'s eldest son condemned federal lawmakers over their inaction. He spoke with a number of other folks, and he spoke after the vice president, Kamala Harris, had this to say, marking the day. Dr. King was a prophet. He was a prophet in that he saw the present exactly as it was, and the future as it could be. And he pushed our nation toward that future. Dr. King pushed even as his character was maligned. He pushed even as his family's life was threatened. He pushed even as his own life was in jeopardy. He pushed for racial justice for economic justice, and for the freedom that unlocks all others, the freedom to vote. Today, our freedom to vote is under assault. In Georgia and across our nation, anti-voter laws are being passed that could make it more difficult for as many as 55 million Americans to vote. We must not be complacent or complicit. We must not give up, and we must not give in. To truly honor the legacy of the man we celebrate today, we must continue to fight for the freedom to vote, 
for freedom for all. Vice President Kamala Harris, Martin Luther King Jr.'s teenage granddaughter, Yolanda Renee King, also spoke today. She says her grandfather's struggle is the same struggle facing young people today, especially the assault on voting rights. One important lesson I learned from my grandparents is that no matter how old you are, no matter who you are, all of us can create change when we choose to show up and speak out. I'm speaking especially to the young people here today in Washington who have decided to show up on a Monday morning to speak out and demand their senators protect their future right to vote. The Senate must do the right thing when this legislation comes to a vote tomorrow. Senator Sinema, Senator Manchin, our future hinges on your decision and history will remember what choice you make. And that is Yolanda Renee King, who is the granddaughter of Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King III, her father and the son of Martin Luther King Jr., said though he was marking the federal holiday name for his dad, he wasn't there to celebrate. He was there to call on Congress and President Joe Biden to pass that sweeping voting rights legislation to help ease Republican-led voting restrictions passed in at least 19 states making it more difficult to cast the ballot. My father would have been on Saturday, 93 years old. My mother always said uh, the holiday should be a day on, not a day off. Today we're not here to celebrate. We're here to be on and to warn that our democracy stands on the brink of serious trouble without these bills. Last week, the president said he's tired of being quiet about voting rights. Well, we're tired of being patient. Since January 6, 2021, when the insurrectionists attacked our capital, 19 legislatures have passed 34 laws clawing back voting rights for their citizens. These laws are being passed with knife-like precision. It's all over. Texas, Florida, Iowa, Arizona, the list goes on. More legislatures are gearing up to pass laws like these when they convene this year. And our Senate is letting them get away with it because of a little technicality called the filibuster. Martin Luther King III, earlier in the day, attendees, uh, before they spoke, gathered to speak later on, they gathered in the morning on Potomac Avenue and um, marched towards the Frederick Douglass Memorial Bridge, where they were joined by D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and other civil rights activists. It was a uh, it was a replay, in a sense, of the uh, march in Selma, Alabama, over the Edmund Pettus Bridge that launched the modern civil rights movement. Mayor Muriel Bowser spoke today, and she talked about the uh, the most probably the most fundamental voting rights uh, problem in America. The the, the fact that the Washington, D.C., the people of Washington, D.C. are denied voting senators uh, to senators, which uh, which they've been fighting for for a long time in D.C. as part of a drive for uh, D.C. statehood. Bowser spoke today. Flight of Washington, D.C. is the same plight that millions more Americans could find themselves in if we don't pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. 
cut out from the democratic process and treated as second-class citizens. You will be expected to pay taxes, you will be expected to serve in the military, and you will be expected to follow the rules set by the Congress, Senator. Dr. King was unapologetic in his fight for racial justice, social justice, and economic justice. We cannot advance our democracy or build stronger communities if Americans do not have a say when decisions are being made and how funds are being distributed. So we're speaking up for voting rights, but also speaking up for the 700,000 people here who don't have a vote in their own Congress, in their own city. Thank you. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi also spoke today. She said that the filibuster is outmoded and outdated. It's time for it to go. This is about suppressing the vote. It's about nullifying the elections, which Dr. King talked about that day. Nullifying the election. It's about uh, just doing so many things to be obstacles to participation. That's wrong. And as has been indicated by the King family, these, this bill is supported by all of the Democrats, House and Senate. It's just the filibuster in the way. And uh, we also heard from uh, DeMario Cooper, a Akron, Ohio activist, uh, well known throughout the United States for his work in uh, voting rights, trying to win access to the polls for African-American people and all, by extension, all Americans. I'm organized. I talk to people. And what I want to say to the people is no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens tomorrow, whether they do the right thing or they choose to do the wrong thing and hold up this historic arcane system of oppression, especially right now when we're in a clapback clap moment. We are in a clapback moment. If you are confused, go find out what happened during Reconstruction. And we are in that moment again. So it don't matter what they do tomorrow. Dr. King said, it's a long arc, but it bends towards justice. The force that bends that arc is us. And it's time for us to cross the bridge from oppression in the history of oppression in this country to a country where everyone has the freedom to thrive, the freedom to live a dignified life, to not be stuck in shame and guilt. That requires us to build power. That requires us to build power. Demario Cooper and Kelly Robinson is the executive director of Planned Parenthood Action Fund. She says the fight for choice is the same as the fight for voter rights. Y'all, voting rights and reproductive rights are inextricably linked. And right now, both are under attack. It's not an accident or coincidence what's happening right now because access to sexual and reproductive health care cannot be achieved without a functioning democracy, one that represents the will of the people, full stop, period. And right now, that is just not happening. Many people today have spoken about the voting restrictions that are harming and being put forward across our country, state by state. But guess what? In many of those same states, we are also seeing them pass harsher and harsher abortion restrictions. And that's despite what the people want. That's despite the will of the people. We know that there's not a state in this country where banning abortion is possible. We know that 8 in 10 Americans support access to safe and legal abortion. And yet still, 
They continue to attack our bodies and our rights. This, my friends, is not a coincidence. This is a part of a concerted effort by extreme politicians to cling on to power by any means necessary. But guess what? We are not going to let that happen. Kelly Robinson of Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Becky Pringle is president of the National Education Association, the nation's largest labor union. She's also a middle school science teacher with 31 years under her belt. She said it's all about teaching the youth. We will work every single day grounded in Dr. King's teachings that every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice and struggle. This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is the time for vigorous action. Our collective action is the only way we will create that just society for our students and our families and our communities. Our children, our babies, are depending on us to be worthy of them. Becky Pringle, the head of the NEA. Melanie Campbell is president of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation and convener of the Black Women's Roundtable, recognized as one of the hardest working civic leaders, civic leaders in today's civil rights movement. No, we don't have the bit of clubs and the hoses. But this country's at a place at a breaking point. This issue is not just about black folks voting. This is about this democracy crumbling before our very eyes. I come out of Florida, a little place called Mims, Florida, Harry and Harriet T. Moore country whose homes were bombed before I was even born in the 50s. That's where we're headed back to because the element of violence in this country is escalating. We have a former president who keeps pushing it. And so the American people have to stand up. Those of us who are activists and organizers are going to keep fighting and keep pushing. But a year from now, I said it the other day, if we don't get this together, we're not going to recognize this democracy. And so the attack on voting rights, the attack on reproductive rights, even critical race theory, it's all connected because it's about us versus them and not we. Melanie Campbell, um, she was followed by Congresswoman Terry Sewell, who represents Alabama's 7th Congressional District, which includes Birmingham, Montgomery and Selma. She herself is from Selma. She talked a lot about crossing bridges today. Almost six decades ago, John Lewis and the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement marched, fought, and yes, bled on a bridge for the equal right of all Americans to vote. Their efforts culminated in the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And voting rights was never partisan until recently. The Voting Rights Bill passed five times for reauthorization under four Republican presidents. But now we're having a problem, a problem called the filibuster. I agree with my colleagues 
I agree with the King family. We cannot let a process stand in the way. A process, oh, by the way, that over 150 times has been set aside, and most recently by the raising of the debt ceiling. If we can raise the debt ceiling, surely we can pass the John Robert Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act to protect our democracy. Congresswoman Terry Sewell. She was followed by Rona Epstein, who's the executive director of Move On. This is not a normal time. This is not just another vote. This is not politics as usual. It cannot and it must not be politics as usual for us and for the Democrats in the U.S. Senate. Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, do not tell us you support this bill while simultaneously joining with the forces trying to block it. And most importantly, do not say the filibuster is some unbreakable rule and changing it will destroy the U.S. Senate. That is a self-serving, bold-faced lie, and everyone knows it. Rona Epstein is the uh, executive director of Move On. King, who delivered his historic I Have a Dream speech while leading the 1963 March on Washington and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, considered racial equality inseparable from alleviating poverty and stopping war. His insistence on nonviolent protests continues to influence activists pushing for civil rights and social change in this country and around the world. And that's some of the news for Monday, January 17, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.